Children may be dismissed to junior church as we begin our sermon for today. And I also want to thank Joyce's daughter, Janet, is once again with us uh, and playing with us today. And thank you so much for being with us uh, once again as you came up and we put you to work. So thank you. We are going to be turning to a passage of scripture here in just a moment. We're going to be looking at, well, actually a few passages, not just one. Matthew twenty-two sixteen will be the first one we'll turn to. Matthew 22, verse 16. You know, I don't know about you, but I can be thin-skinned. I care too much about what other people think. There are many times where I'm wondering, what's somebody else going to think? What's somebody else going to think about this and that? What's their approval going to be? And as I shared when I was talking in a devotion with the Pregnancy Help Center a few months ago, I'm done with that. As long as it's okay with you, as long as it's okay with you, I'm not going to care about the approval of people anymore. Did you catch that? Okay. Maybe not. I'll let you think on that for a moment. I've recently realized my problem more and more, you know, and I'm reading this book that I heard in a Colson Center podcast called Upstream. And they're talking about the psychology of the body and many different things. And I heard a book, I heard about a book by J.P. Moreland. J.P. Moreland is a Christian philosopher. And I read about him, I've read many quotes from him before. He, he actually earned his master's and PhD under Dallas Willard, another Christian philosopher, and maybe that's where I heard of him before. And he was also in a book, Unleashing Peace, that, that I read a few months ago. And, and there's another book called Finding Quiet. And it's his story about overcoming anxiety. And, and I got the book and I started going through it. I'm around page 101 right now. But he talks about a solution called the heart math solution, the heart math solution. I'm not going to describe that whole solution right now because it's, it's a little too much. But it does focus on the heart and the whole body. And I want to read one thing from this book, though, which is on page 82. He says, a third strand of thought, a scientific one derived from recent discoveries, may shed light on biblical teaching about the core of a person and its relationship to the heart organ. Now get this. Neuroscientists have discovered that the heart has its own independent nervous system, referred to as the brain and the heart. The brain and the heart. We used to think that the ancient people would just talk about the heart or they would talk about the heart as like the, the center of being and where our thinking comes from. We just thought they didn't know any better. You know, it was, it's really the brain. But, but this, now science is showing there's like a brain in the heart. Now get this, get this. Neuroscientists have discovered that the heart is its own independent nervous system referred as a, to as the brain and the heart. In a real sense, the heart thinks for itself. Some 40,000 neurons are in the heart, which are as many as are found in a number of important subregions of the brain. The heart sends signals to different parts of the brain, including the amygdala. The amygdala specializes in strong emotional memories and is what the soul uses to process information for its emotional significance. Now, what's interesting about the amygdala, and this relates because we're talking about dealing with life's difficulties. What's interesting about the amygdala, when somebody has panic or anxiety or worry or fear, the amygdala is a small little part of the brain that sends, it's small but mighty, sends all these different chemicals to the parts of the body, adrenaline and cortisol and all these different things. There was a book, you've heard me reference it before, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. 
I guess somehow they know that zebras don't get ulcers. I didn't know, but I guess they don't. And that's because their amygdala is only releasing cortisol and all these types of things when they're getting chased by lions. And ours get released when we're being rejected by people or we're perceived being rejected by people. But it's interesting, I was told just a few days ago, just yesterday actually, that the way to defeat the amygdala in its response is prayer. In fact, a Christian counselor who specializes in PTSD told me that just yesterday. The way to defeat the amygdala is through prayer and meditation. And there's different principles that come up in this book along that way line as well. So that him take it to the Lord in prayer. Take it to the Lord in prayer. So I've recently realized my problem, or maybe in the last several years, uh, how, how much I try to keep everyone happy, keep up with people pleasing, and the fear of man, and things like that. And again, as long as it's okay with you, and you can tell me afterwards if it's not, I'm done with people pleasing. But I read this article, it was through Desiring God, and it said, it started this way. Tell me, good Brutus, can you see your face? Tell me, good Brutus, can you see your face? Cassius, one of the villains in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, is ambitious. Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, he's ambitious. He sees Julius Caesar ascending to power, and Cassius hates it. Yet he knows, like Scar in the Lion King, that if he wants to take down Caesar, he must gain powerful allies. Brutus, a noble war hero, is such a man, a powerful ally. Cassius slithers up to Brutus while Brutus is in some untold conflict with himself, perhaps fighting a similar concern with Caesar's rise. Listen again to his question. Tell me, good Brutus, can you see your face? Cassius asks Brutus if he can see himself. In other words, Cassius asks if he can properly know himself. If he can see Brutus as Brutus is, without the help of another, no. Cassius, Brutus responds, for the eye sees not itself, but by reflection, by some other things. As I cannot see its own face, Brutus responds, neither can he know himself alone. He must see his reflection by some mirror. Cassius, Cassius to recruit this needed knight to checkmate the potential king, offers to be that mirror for Brutus. Flatteringly, he reflects a majestic Brutus, a regal Brutus, a Brutus that is as great, if not greater, than Caesar, a Brutus the people would wish was in charge. He became the reflection that Brutus wanted. Greg Morris, Greg Morris the writer of that article, continues, and he says, Who do you look at to see yourself? Whose opinion of you forms your identity? If you have been like me, perhaps you rely on many mirrors. Does this group think I am fun to be around? Does my wife find me desirable? Does this pastor or small group respect me? Do these people think I'm smart or those funny? Does this, does this group like my writing? Does he think I talk too much? I received a question regarding how are we to respond to rejection, especially by the church, spouse, or parents. And it's a hard thing to answer, uh, but it's something that drives us back to Scripture and drives us back to Romans, especially Romans chapter 8, which we'll get to in a moment. But my theme today is, if God is for us, who can be against us?
If God is for us, who can be against us? But first, look at this. In Matthew twenty-two sixteen. if you turn there in your Bibles, uh, Jesus did not go around thinking about what one person thought of him or another person thought of him. He went around doing what the Lord had called him to do, come what may. In Matthew twenty-two sixteen, it says, And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, which is a people group back then, um, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true, and you teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances. By appearances. Jesus was not swayed by appearances. What a nugget of truth about the fear of man as opposed to the fear of God. Now, certainly we all think about maybe what's in style as we dress and as we, you know, things like that. Of course, we all think about, to an extent, what is maybe relevant for today, uh, at least as far as decorating and dress and demeanor and things like that, you know. But we got to be careful about going too far with that. We got to be careful about it, it causing anxiety. Right is right. Wrong is wrong. We have absolute truth in the word of God. And sometimes that truth divides. And I think that's exactly what this was saying. Jesus teaches the way of God truthfully. Does not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances. Greg Morse continues in his article and he says, The Pharisees in the spirit of Cassius said this to manipulate Jesus. They meant to entangle him. They wanted him out of the way, so they held a meeting to discuss how to trap him in his words. This introduction, which flattered Jesus for not regarding faces, was bait. For their plan to work, they needed Jesus to continue to do what he had been doing. They needed Jesus to speak truthfully regardless of the consequences. He couldn't back down now or the web wouldn't stick. They need him to answer They think they've asked a question Jesus can't answer without his arm. So they say, in effect, teacher, we know you're true and speak God's way truthfully and that you don't fear any man. We know you will tell us exactly how it is. That you will speak plainly the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, come what may. I love this quote from Matthew Henry, a Christian pastor and writer from many centuries ago, Matthew Henry says, in his evangelical judgment, he did not know faces. The line of the tribe of Judah turned not away for any, turned not a step from the truth nor from his work for fear of the most formidable. He reproved with equity and never with partiality. See Isaiah eleven four and Proverbs thirty thirty as a cross-reference. The Lion of the tribe of Judah did not know faces. Let's look at more scriptures. Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man, the fear of human beings, lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. We need to trust in the Lord above anything else. Luke 12, 4 to 5. Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more than they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. 
Yes, I tell you, fear him. Some of us are more afraid of humans' disapproval than of God. Jesus was preparing them for persecution. In Acts 8.1, we see the early church persecuted. In 2 Timothy 3.12, the apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, everyone uh, who tries to live righteous, wait, all who are godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That's what it says. All who are godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Jesus is preparing them for that. Acts 5.29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. Psalm 111, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. One source shares, the fear of man has replaced biblical conviction in some so-called Christian circles today. Public opinion has overridden the clear teaching of scripture on many social issues. So the first point is we need to have a healthy, and it is healthy, fear of God more than anyone else. We need to, uh, first and foremost, care about the approval of God and not the approval of other people. But why do we not have to be concerned about rejection? And it's because God has accepted us. Look at Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. I know I got a lot of scripture today. You can pick up the manuscript and read it later or look it up on my blog if, it's, if you're having trouble keeping up. But Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption, adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. God has chosen us. God has accepted us. God has adopted us. God has blessed us in Christ Jesus. Who is to condemn if God has accepted us? We are saved by grace, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. And we must live with Jesus. You hear me quote John 15, verse 4, where Jesus says to abide in him, which is to say remain in him. In John 15, 5, apart from him we can do nothing. And that's why we do not need to be concerned about the fear of people or rejection. Because we are connected to the vine. We are connected to Jesus. And he has accepted us. Now, we need to remind ourselves of that. We need to talk to ourselves We might need uh, to talk to a Christian counselor, a biblical counselor, and have them take us through certain therapies. Or in the book, Finding Quiet, they go through different ways to kind of retrain our brain, retrain our amygdala to make the negative self-talk go away and and the other positive thoughts stick with us. We might need to change the channel on our head. We might need to meditate on these verses, and we need to meditate and memorize these verses and ruminate on these verses because God has accepted us as Christians. Romans, read your Romans. That was in last Sunday's sermon that's in today. Romans 8, 31 and following. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's a question with an end. It's rhetorical. It's got an implied negative answer. If God is for us, who can be against us? No one. If God is for us, no one can be against us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Justifies means to be declared righteous. God has made us righteous. God has adopted us into his family. God has given us the Holy Spirit. And if God being the greatest being out there, there is no one greater than God. And he is for you. If you are in Christ, the greatest being in the universe, the greatest being in the multiverse, if there is a multiverse, the greatest being in all creation is for you. If you are in Christ, no one can be against you. No one can condemn you. Romans 8, 34 says, who is to condemn? No one can condemn you. Now, if God wasn't the greatest, we'd have something to fear. But God is the greatest and he is for us. If you are in Christ, no one can condemn you. Jesus has saved you. He died. He was raised for you. He's at the right hand of God. That is a place of authority. He is interceding for you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Remember, if God sent Jesus to the cross for us, what more can God do to show that he cares? No one can separate us. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. No, nothing can separate us from God's love. That's what this passage in Romans 8 is all about. That's what Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3 are all about. God's amazing grace. That's why oftentimes the, the uh, theology in the scripture precedes the application. Romans chapters 1 through 11 are all great theology of salvation. And then you begin the action. Then you begin about love and all that stuff. Because our actions are grounded in who we are in Christ. God is for us. Read the rest of that passage, Romans 8, 34 through 38. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised with the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You and I, we may face rejection by people. We may face rejection by coworkers, by family. But if we are in Christ, we are accepted by him. And let me add a little, a little footnote right here. Sometimes somebody might make a comment and it may come off the negative. It might be negative. They might even say it the wrong way. But there might be an element of truth that we should consider to it. Always take it to the Lord in prayer. What a friend we have in Jesus. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Take it to the scriptures. But ultimately remember our security is in Christ. We are more than conquerors, but how? Through God who loved us. Because of the salvation that God freely gives us, we are more than conquerors. But not because of what we do, but what he has done. It is all about Jesus. And Paul repeats with great detail that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And notice the end of that passage. In Christ Jesus our Lord. The question here related to how we deal with being rejected by a spouse or family member. Read, meditate on, memorize those passages, fuel your life with Christ, pour yourself into Jesus. 
Pour yourself into spiritual disciplines. Uh, Make sure that you are taking things to the Lord in prayer, that you are reading the scriptures every day. We need to be in the word of God and letting it feed us. We need to be with our church family in worship. Those are corporate church, bride of Christ, spiritual disciplines. We need to be with the body of Christ as well as spending time with God on our own as well. We need to let the scriptures feed us and let the body of Christ feed us. We need that so badly. Otherwise, we're starving. Remember, Jesus told us this would happen. Luke 12, verses 51 through 53, Jesus says this startling statement. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They'll be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, Mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Later on, the truth would divide. Families and friends would be divided by the gospel, and that still happens today. And maybe some of you have experienced that. You had to make a stand for truth. Now, as we make a stand for the truth, I encourage you, try to give as much grace and mercy and love as you can. And they still might reject you, but go back to this passage. Jesus said that would happen. And remember, go back to your Romans 8. Jesus has accepted you. I've heard many interviews, many Christian pastors and writers are being asked, how do we deal with certain things? Uh, Maybe my child or grandchild is getting married and they're getting married in a homosexual relationship. How do we respond? And many times I recommend don't go to the wedding, go to the reception because the wedding is endorsing and giving approval. But the other thought is give as much grace and as much mercy and as much love as you can. Try to stand for truth. They probably know how you feel and they may reject you, but try to keep the relationship open as much as you can. Remember the world is watching and the world does not share our values. They need to know Jesus as Lord and Savior first. Remember that. That's another way. And as you pray and hopefully as you journal, journaling and reflection is critical when we're dealing with emotional disturbance and anxiety or rejection. And as you journal, even write out, they've rejected me, but I feel like I've made the stand for truth. And maybe examine these scriptures and examine and reflect what you've done and how you stated it and and maybe the conversations you've had and what else you could do and pray about it. Certainly seek a Christian counselor. Talk to a good Christian friend. A good Christian friend, a confidant can be just as good as a Christian counselor in many cases. I encourage you, read testimonies of Christians who have faced this. If God, but remember again, I can't remind you of this enough. If God has accepted us, that's what matters most. Ultimately, if God forgives me, what else is concerning? We must forgive others though, as God has forgiven us, Ephesians 4.32. We must get support, as I've already said, talk to Christian friends, prayer partners, counselors. Proverbs 27.17 says, as iron sharpens iron, so one sharpens another. Ecclesiastes 4.9-12 talks about how we're stronger together as a body of Christ. You can't emphasize enough. We must stay in the spiritual disciplines. We must stay close to the vine. We must pray scripture. Journaling and prayer journaling may help, as I shared. Seek a counselor. Uh, There is a group that I've recently learned about about six months ago, Emerge Counseling Services. They're a Christian counseling service. They even do counseling virtually. If you can't get to different appointments, they can do it uh, through through, uh, some type of video type of thing. Meditate on scripture. 
and remember that God has accepted you. Remember God's love for you. Remind yourself of that. Remind yourself of that again and again and again and again. And then go to Philippians 4, 4 through 13. Remember that Philippians 4, 4 through 13 was written from prison. Paul was in prison. The church at Philippi had suffered persecution. And Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit. That means we should be gentle even under attack. We can be firm. This is truth. But we, be gent- but we should be gentle. Let your gentle spirit be made known to all. The Lord is near. Then he says, do not be anxious for anything. But in all situations, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Then Philippians 4, 8, think on things that are true and right, pure and holy. You know, and I think no matter what, sometimes depending on how our amygdala and our brain is working, we might have to keep going back to that scripture. Sometimes it's easier said than done to turn that channel back to that scripture. But that's my encouragement to do. That's where writing can help. That's where journaling can help. That's where hearing it from Christian friends can help. But again, I'm done with people pleasing. As long as that's okay with you. I want to share a story. Michael Reeves recently gave this at a Ligonier conference about a guy named Hugh Latimer. Hugh Latimer lived from 1487 to 1555. 1487 to 1555. Latimer was an English bishop, and he once preached before the frightful King Henry VIII. You know of King Henry VIII. You know, he's the one who led England to separate from, um, from the Church of Rome, you know, the Roman Catholic Church, because he wanted to keep getting married, you know. King Henry VIII, and Henry VIII was an easily provoked man with many wives and many mistresses. And Charles Haddon Spurgeon in the 1800s described the scene this way. It was the custom of the court preacher to present the king with something on his birthday. And Pastor Latimer presented King Henry VIII with a pocket handkerchief, with this text in the corner. Now get this. This was for sure a king standing on truth. I mean, a pastor standing on truth. Now this is what Latimer gave to King Henry VIII for his birthday. He gave him a pocket handkerchief. And this text was inscribed on the corner. Whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. Hebrews 13, 4. A very suitable text for King Henry VIII. Now, that's a bold pastor standing before King Henry VIII who's beheading people. Well, and then he preached a sermon before his most gracious majesty against sins of lust. And he delivered himself with tremendous force, not forgetting or abridging the personal application. The king, as you would expect, was not pleased. He told Latimer that he was to preach again the next Sunday and apologize to him publicly. Latimer thanked the king and left. I wonder what he thought of the next week. The following Sunday arrived, Latimer climbed the pulpit. That's what you did back then, you climbed the pulpit. And then he said these unforgettable words. He said, Hugh Latimer, referring to himself in the third person, thou art this day to preach before the high and mighty Prince Henry, King of Great Britain and France. If thou sayest one single word that displeases his majesty, he will take thy head off. 
Therefore, mind what thou art at. But then he said, Hugh Latimer, thou art this day to preach before the Lord God Almighty, who is able to cast both body and soul into hell. And so tell the king the truth outright. I'm guessing that's what he did. He stood for the truth. And that's the example that we are to follow. Of course, that's dealing with being rejected by an authority, not a close family member. But we can stand for the truth, and we can always remember that God has accepted us. What can man do to us? As Romans 8 shares, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you so much for your word and your encouragement in Romans. Lord God, we know that in your word, we have these inspired words from apostles, a church that faced rejection. A church that faced rejection by family and friends. A church that faced rejection by their synagogue. A church that faced rejection by their, by their own close companions. A church that faced rejection by their co-workers. And we can learn from them. And it seems as though, Lord, Paul was encouraging them that you have accepted them. What more can man do to them? Lord God, I pray that you would encourage us today. Encourage us all. Who is, to, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one. Thank you for your great love. Encourage us today as we close. And Lord God, just because I don't know if uh, this will be shared, for those, Lord, going to lunch upstairs or I guess at home or with others, we pray for the food today. Bless the food to our bodies and all those that took part preparing it. Bless our fellowship. Bless our congregation as we depart. Whether we're going to our homes or works or, or wherever it might be, bless and guide. We are witnesses wherever we go. We are entering the mission field as we leave. And may we remember, even when we are rejected, especially when we are rejected, that's our mission field. They need to know you as Lord and Savior. And we thank you for the friend we have in Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. As we close in prayer, as we close in song, as always, the altars are open. Feel free to come forward and pray. Great.